When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto. I'm Ash Bennington. Today, we talk about the eCash bill introduced in the U.S. House of Representatives on Monday. I'm joined today by Rowan Gray, who consulted on the bill and is an assistant professor at Willamette University, and by Santiago Velez, who is well known to our RV viewers, co-founder and division lead of R&D at Block Digital Corp. Okay, right off the bat, let's talk about what this bill is and what it's not. First off, it's a digital dollar proposal to be issued by the U.S. Treasury Department, not a CBDC to be issued by the Fed. Lots of detail here to dig into. Rowan, first over to you. What's it all about? What's the big picture here? The big picture is that we are looking into how to design a digital dollar that replicates the privacy, anonymity, and uh, transactional freedom respecting properties of physical cash, which is to say that rather than using a centralized ledger or a distributed ledger, it uses no ledger at all, and that the security and integrity of the system is maintained through the hardware in the same way that the hardware of coins and notes and uh, debit cards it provides the security for those systems. So this system is an attempt to complement the existing conversation around account-based monies and central bank digital currencies by uh, providing a option that has all of the features and benefits of physical cash in the digital context. Santiago, I know you've been thinking a lot about this. Jump in. Well, I, I was going to say, I mean, what would you say is kind of the impetus for this right now? Is there a particular reason why... Um, this is being introduced in light of other developments or what's your view there? Yeah, I think this has been a longstanding goal uh, for people interested in developing a public digital dollar who do care about civil liberties and privacy. But up until this point, the conversation has been largely stuck in a debate between advocates of sort of account-based CBDCs and crypto advocates who oppose a sort of public option. And a lot of that debate has centered around concerns over privacy and surveillance. I think rightly, there are concerns that having a, a central account system with nothing else on its own could be very easily abused. Uh, and that without some sort of public option uh, that, that provides the stability of a actual dollar issued by the government, that the, the any privacy features that a cryptocurrency might be able to offer are always going to be uh, impaired or otherwise complicated by the specifics of the private currency. So this is an attempt to take the current debate and to move past what I consider to be an impasse, which is sort of being pro-public goods on one hand and being pro-privacy on the other and showing that it's actually possible to value both of those things at the same time if you have the right approach, right model, right institutional framework. So how does it work, Rowan? Tell us a little bit about the underlying technology. 
Well, the bill is a pilot program, so it's intended in part to really bring attention to this kind of technology. One of the problems up until now is that if you're working on a crypto project, there's probably a lot of money in the space available for you to try to tap. But that's because you're pro providing or going to create a product that you can monetize and make a profit off of, uh, or that is doing things that, that the public maybe isn't interested in or the public authorities aren't interested in. Uh, and conversely, uh, if you're trying to create a government digital currency at this point, most of the conversation has been around what central banks are willing to, to create. And you ask a central banker what a central bank digital currency is, and they don't have a clear answer. It's a very vague term. It doesn't say who it's for. It doesn't say why it's been created. It doesn't say what features it will have. The only thing the term central bank digital currency actually provides clarity on is that it's going to be issued by the central bank. But when you then say, okay, you're going to issue it, you're the central bank, the next thing in those conversations is, well, we don't have any capacity to provide direct retail services. We never do that. That's not in our wheelhouse. That's not in our institutional expertise. And then they say, and of course, we have AML, anti-money laundering, know your customer rules that apply to accounts. So if we're going to create an account money, it needs to have the same rules that apply to other accounts. So full anonymity is not possible. And so immediately, even before you've actually had a technical conversation, central bankers will say it has to be account-based, it has to be non-anonymous, and we don't want to provide it directly. We want to use third parties to be the, set, the sort of last mile intermediary. But if you look at other instruments issued by the government. If you look at coins and notes, they don't meet that definition. They are retail. They do not involve an account. They uh, are anonymous. And the Treasury has been happily providing those instruments since, you know, shortly after the United States was formed. So the idea that the government can't do this is not true, even if it may be true that the central bank can't do it. So this instrument is really trying to start from the same place that coins and notes start, which is we want it to be public. We want it to be retail oriented that is directly holdable by average people. We don't want it to have uh, any uh, third party involvement such that you lose an expectation of privacy because you're handing over your data to other people. Uh, and that the hardware itself, either a smart card or a mobile phone uh, or a SIM card in a mobile phone, will be the place that ensures there's no double spending or counterfeiting so that if you make a transaction from one device to another, what you're doing is sending over an encrypted sort of value um, that can be sent offline using Bluetooth or near-field communication or even sending just a 10-digit code, the other uh, party inputs. And that that technology then um, allows people to use it in all the places that they currently use cash, but that they can't use uh, accounts. So it would be distributed on one hand, could be just mailed out the way that we mailed out prepaid cards during COVID. Um, it could be something you buy directly from the post office or from a bank or from a, a convenience store, a card or a prepaid cell phone that has this built in. Uh, and those cell phones could be very cheap. They don't have to be you know, expensive smartphones. They could be a $40 burner phone. And then when you want to withdraw money from your bank account into that, you can either do the equivalent of going to a, a, a kiosk or something and, and you know, paying cash, uh, physical cash or paying a, a, a person that, that loads the value onto a card and gives it to you. Uh, or you can simply withdraw money from your bank account and transfer it onto the card. Uh, and that you could do from the convenience of your home. And you would simply do that on an app 
or you would do that by sending value to the card uh, from you know your debit card or something. And that would be the equivalent of withdrawing physical currency. Your bank would, would sort of give you this currency that it would buy from the treasury in exchange for its bank account deposits. And if you wanted to deposit e-cash back in your bank account, uh, you could do the same thing. And the bank would simply take that e-cash and if they had too much of it, they would send the excess back to the treasury who would tell the Fed to mark up their account. Uh, so in that respect, it, in terms of the issuance and the distribution into circulation, it would function a lot like physical currency. And in terms of the actual payment, uh, we might use it in a way that looks a lot like we might use other forms of electronic money, you know, QR codes on our phone, uh, point of sale terminals. But on the back end, behind the scenes, it would be very different because it would be a stored value card. The closest analogs we have today on the stored value card side of things are um, transit cards. Many jurisdictions do use stored value cards. Uh, and also uh, in the United States context, Eagle Cash is a program established by the Treasury that's used by military members in overseas war zones where they can't trust access to the banking system or the internet. And they don't want to be sending out pallets of cash that could uh, get into local circulation. So we do have existing technological models for this. There are companies providing technological options that will go into this pilot program. But part of the goal here is to let technologists know that this is an area where they should be spending more time. They should be investing more interest and that there should be governments on the other side willing to, to fund that and to support the development of this technology. That's great. Ash, if you don't mind, I'd like to kind of maybe frame the conversation a little. Uh, I know longtime viewers of Real Vision may or may not be aware, but um, well, I'll, I'll kind of frame it in a four-way race uh, context. Uh, so I see, you know, central bank digital currencies in China uh, being uh, piloted. And I think in that context, there's very little separation between the Chinese central government and the Chinese central bank. Uh, whereas, so, you know, let's say that's horse number one. Horse number two is domestic Federal Reserve uh, having a, you know, being a central bank, having the idea of either a CBDC that's wholesale for interbank settlement or CBDC that's retail. And I've kind of put that in category number two as an account base. Uh, category number three looks to me as, uh, you know, e-cash, which is issued by the Treasury, which kind of points out the distinction between the Federal Reserve and the Treasury in the United States exclusively versus China, and, and, and you'll call that horse number three. And then finally, I put in the in the final bucket, uh, kind of privately issued uh, digital assets that call themselves stable coins, you know, things mm -hmm. like USDC mm -hmm. and, and Tether. Um, and it's kind of these four variations that introduce mm -hmm. a lot of confusion in the marketplace mm -hmm. over mm -hmm. what is, you know, legal tender, um, uh, what are the rights and privileges that the owner has as a bearer instrument? Um, so based on this kind of four-way race I've framed, um, what's your view? Why eCash versus, they say, the other three? Yeah, so most stablecoins, in fact, all stablecoins, to my knowledge, are built on a blockchain system or a centralized uh, intermediary that issues the the. the, the um, uh, the, the coin, either either a, a decentralized that uses, you know, Ethereum or some underlying blockchain, or there's a central issuer that then also uses something like a blockchain for settlement. What that means is that you still need access to that ledger uh, to main, make settlement make payments happen. So from a cash perspective, stable coins are not actually providing the functionality of cash. They are providing the functionality of maybe a more 
a, a more versatile bank account or a more versatile form of online ledger payment, but they are not giving you that offline capacity. They're not giving you the ability to make a transaction that doesn't leave any record whatsoever in a central database or a common database. So in that respect, I just don't think that that's providing the same service. The other thing is that 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 model, and that I think is a model that um, that the Fed is leaning towards now. They don't want to be the direct provider of their own CBDC. Um, they would rather hand over the sort of day-to-day administration. So I think you're going to see a convergence between bucket two and bucket four in a sense that mm. the central bank digital currency, when it finally has a two-tier model, will end up looking a lot like a stable coin. And that's actually, I think, where Jeremy Allaire and USDC is sort of skating to where the puck is going, so to speak. You know, he's trying to position USDC as the the stable coin um, that becomes the, the, the partner for the CBDC. And I think it's not an accident that a large number of people at the Boston Fed that are participating in the um, collaboration with the MIT Digital Currency Lab are former uh, Circle employees. But so but that but that model is built on a kind of public-private partnership model. It's 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 a public good provided by private actors, and I don't like that model. I, I think it's a perversion of public goods. I think mm. it creates an incentive misalignment where those private actors don't have an incentive to provide universal inclusion and access because it's not profitable to them. And we've seen that model play out with the traditional banking sector. They hate providing. Um, banking products in banking deserts and places where it's not profitable for them. So I don't think that that, that stablecoin model is a good one. Uh, in terms of the government, the central bank digital currency model, I think it's fine to have a government digital bank account. And I think, you know, that Fed accounts are a good idea, but I think on their own, they have serious privacy risks. And also there are risks around the legal status of bank accounts, which is that because you have to ask that third party, you don't have that reasonable expectation of privacy and know your customer anti-money laundering laws not only apply to you as the customer, they apply to the administrator so that if you are undocumented or if you're running a marijuana business or if you're a sex worker or if you're a political dissident, you know whatever you might want to use money, the, the central bank might not feel comfortable giving you an account, and that's going to be the end of it. So I think there's a very big difference in the degree of um, involvement that the government has over the people that use its money when it's issuing an account versus a, a digital cash. As for the Chinese model, I think, you know, the Chinese model actually is sort of trying to integrate two-tier architecture as well. Um, they, interestingly enough, have created a hardware-based offline-capable version for small dollar donations. Um, in that respect, it's it's kind of amazing that you could say at this point they're better on anonymity than the Fed is because they're at least countenancing it for some very small transaction amounts, even if not for everything else. So it's a very sad day when, when the Chinese government, I think, has the edge over the United States on privacy and freedom. Hey, if you like this clip, be sure to check out the full interview and more only on realvision.com forward slash crypto. It's 100% free. Sign up now.